I invite you to pray with me. Come now, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire. Come and enlighten us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, nothing else matters. This we pray in the name of your beloved Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. When I was a teenager, I made a list of all the things that I would not do that my parents did. You probably made a mental list. I remember, you know, as a 13 or 14-year-old just being gobsmacked by the amount of hypocrisy that I saw. And all of us probably remember the days when our parents turned to us and said those very words that Jesus parrots in Matthew's Gospel this morning, don't do as I do, do as I say. Those words were etched into my brain on so many occasions, that tired phrase, don't do as I do, but do as I say. And now, worry of worries, I find myself saying the same thing to my children. How about that? It's an odd thing that you can only often um, practice what you've seen practice on you. In the gospel passage this morning, Jesus has had uh, enough. He's reached his limit with these Pharisees, these religious, uh, very intelligent, very powerful cultural figures in Jerusalem, and he's ready to let them have it. Um, It's not that Jesus has thrown in the towel on his own religion or on Judaism, per se, but rather he loves all of it, but he cannot agree with the way that it's being practiced, the way that um, the power and authority that's being used is lorded over people who are meek and poor. They're literally being weighed up, and he says that their practice of religion is simply a form of theater. Jesus lives in a very different culture than we live in. Uh, In some ways, it's similar because the whole, the entirety of this gospel passage is basically Jesus saying, don't be a tall poppy because you just might get cut down, right? Be humble, keep your head down, do the right thing. And at the same time, he's living in a culture that's 180 degrees different than ours. He lives in a culture that is typified by uh, the ideas of honor and shame, right? that people should be honored and lifted up um, for their role in society, for their age, for their wisdom, for their achievements. And this is just unquestionable. It's unquestionable. And Jesus begins to question these things in front of various groups of people. And that's why his teachings were seen as being so controversial. I know a little bit about what it's like to live in an honor and shame culture. Because I lived in Japan for three years. And in Japan and in Asia in general, honor is still a very important facet of society. And it's interesting, even though I was ministering and pastoring an English-speaking church in Tokyo, and I had 30 to 35 different nationalities in my church from every continent in the world, there's something about being in Japan. The culture is so strong that it begins to seep into every institution. And so I would often reflect on how we were becoming Japanified in some ways in this multicultural church, that our ways of doing things and our ways of making decisions were really kind of um, defaulting to Japanese cultural ideas, which caused a little bit of issue with some people who were only there for a year or two, had not lived in Japan, and didn't understand these dynamics, particularly the Americans, who wanted to just get things done, and didn't realize that in Japan, you don't just get things done. 
you have to do things the right way if they're going to get done at all. And that often is a lengthy and a frustrating process. And, um, and, and in the church even, I found myself struggling with just the amount of honor that um, people in the congregation placed on the pastor, on the minister of the church. Um, I never got invited to anyone's home. They always felt too ashamed of how little and small their houses were in their apartments to invite me over. When I did go and visit somebody, in the rare occasion where I get invited to a party, I would often be handed a bunch of notes, a bunch of money at the end of the night for my trouble in coming. You know, this is for the train. I said, I didn't take a train. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'd have to argue with them about giving it back and not taking it. It was all, they ne- there were all these things that needed to happen according to their culture that I was, they were just foreign to me. They were just and, and, and the reason they were so foreign to me and uncomfortable to me is because they made me uncomfortable because it was a product of their culture where they needed to honor me in front of other people. They needed to honor me um, for my role, not for my achievements or my character or my personality, but just because of the role that I had. Um, in another occasion, I had a facilities manager who was repainting classrooms and um, had gone through all the different committees of the church and then had come to me with two different colors of paint and said, I need you to choose the paint color for the new classrooms. And I said, well, I thought that's what the committee's supposed to do. I don't really want to choose the paint color of the classrooms. Um, and so I said, you know, I really believe in your ability to do this. You go away and do it. And, uh, and then I had an intervention from one of the elders who came to me and said, you don't understand that in Japan, you're his boss, which means that you need to approve this. Because when you approve it, if somebody says they don't like the color, he can say, but Ivan said it's okay. (laughs) So there was this whole process that I was caught up in. And Jesus himself is caught up in the same kind of process, the same kind of culture, that does things for reasons that nobody is aware of, but they're very important and they're unquestionable. And part of the interesting thing about Jesus is that he wants to question these things. All right? Um, And he wants to question them not to be a rabble-rouser, but because he wants to point to the power that is humility. And we all know this, that humility is a powerful factor in our world, in our society. And there's nothing worse than false humility. And that's what he was seeing on display with the Pharisees, a bit of false humility. Now, if you've ever watched the Academy Awards, who's watched the Academy Award, the Oscars? Anybody like watching the Oscars? I love watching the Oscars. Because it's literally a party that actors throw for themselves to congratulate themselves on how good they are. And then when they give each other statues, they get up and they pretend to be humble. So all of us remember in the mid-1980s when Sally Field won her second, um, you know, she got up. And what was the, her speech? Do you remember her famous line? You like me. You really like me. This was her second Oscar, and a few years later, F. Murray Abraham won the best actor for his role as Salieri in the um, Peter Schaeffer play Amadeus, which was about Mozart, which was turned from a play into a movie, and he got up and gave a very humble speech. But then the practice at the Oscars is that the next year, the winner of the best actor comes and presents the statue to the best actress nominee. And gives that. And when F. Mary Abraham came the next year to give his, to present the Best Actress Award, he was really not humble. He was the opposite of humble. And it went so poorly that you could see the, uncom- the discomfort in the room, how uncomfortable everybody was, because he had transgressed a fundamental rule about this little culture and bubble that they lived in. Right? 
that we're really wealthy and we're really talented, but we're going to pretend to be humble for tonight because the cameras are watching, and that's what's most important. And he just couldn't get on board with that. And the stories go that a lot of his offers literally just disappeared overnight because of his display of pompousness. And Jesus is pointing to the pompousness that so often accompanies power, raw power. And in Jesus' day, the people he's speaking to had a lot of raw power. These days in religious quarters, it's much the same in some ways. If you see a gaggle of people, um, of Anglican priests, they might be, you know, getting really excited about the latest vestments catalog that's just come out. Um, And with our lot, with Presbyterians, every Presbyterian knows how difficult it is to go into somebody's office and not do this at their bookshelf and read every single title and go, oh, I don't have that one. Oh, they have that one? Oh, can I borrow this one? It's very difficult to get us in and out of a bookstore or a library. Those are the things that we love because in our faith, it's um, very much something that exists in our head. We want to engage our minds um, and we fall in love with our libraries. The problem that Jesus encountered um, is how quickly we make leaders into gurus. Uh, and that this is a temptation of the ego that drives all of us. And another temptation of the ego is something that the prophet Micah points to in the Old Testament, which is this idea of safety. Micah was living in a time when Judea was very wealthy and very uh, well-to-do, and a lot of Arabian um, merchants were taking their goods and services through Judea to the Mediterranean Sea, and they were often taxing and charging all these incredible um, fees to facilitate this. And some of those fees would go to some of the neighboring kingdoms as a little enticement to not invade them. And basically what had happened is that with all this economic prowess, um, the increase um, in uh, the, the, the difference between those at the bottom and those at the top became so intolerable that Micah points out that the very people, the religious people, the pastors, the priests, the prophets, who were supposed to call this out had become so comfortable that they'd become part of the problem. They become complicit, and he calls that out, and how easy it is for us to become complicit with different things. Of course, when we think about organized religion uh, in our country and around the world, we know how much our heart breaks when we hear of the Royal Commission on Abuse and Care, when we hear about the um, sexual abuse cases that have been passed over, the victims that have not been heard. We know that the church, that religious institutions, and not just Christians, but institutions all around the world and of every faith, really, because they're made up of flawed human beings, have dropped the ball. They've not been who they should be. They've not done what they should do for those who have been hurt by them, which is one of the reasons why so many people fell in love with Pope Francis when he was elected. Because for some reason, when they do surveys of people in places like Europe, where Christianity is no longer a growing thing, but a waning thing, a lot of the secular people say, the thing we most want religious leaders to be is people who believe and practice what they preach. That's what they want. They want people who call themselves religious to preach and practice, you know, to practice what they preach, to live out. And when they see people go astray, when they see these horrible cases of abuse or uh, discrepancies or uses in power, that's when the accusations of hypocrisy 
become so, so true. And Pope Francis, of course, was made famous because as soon as he was elected, he refused to live in the papal palace that the Pope lives in. He chose to live in a little one-bedroom apartment, and he refused to be driven around in the limousine. Instead, he chose to be driven around in a Prius. (laughs) Um, And these small little things, these small little things were things that he could do to indicate that he felt himself to be a servant, a leader who was serving, somebody who was there to serve. Now, some of the trappings of these things are uncontrollable. If I were, if you or I were to write a letter to Pope Francis, and I've never done that, but the appropriate um, etiquette to sign the letter and close it would be something like this. I prostrate at your feet, holy, your holiness, and I implore your favor of your apostolic benediction. I have the honor to be very holy father with the deepest vener- veneration of your holiness, the most humble and obedient servant and son, Ivan. <laughs> This is why he doesn't get many postcards, I think. Um, and so, time after time, uh, we find that when it, either when it's a, a leader in a religious context or a leader in a political context, that it's very easy for the power to go to your head um, and, and all of a sudden things go sideways. And this morning we've had the privilege of witnessing the beautiful baptism of little Luca. And this baptism, this thing is one of the things that's set in the center of church life to remind us what this stuff is all about. And it's actually not about the trappings that we think are immovable, the things that we think if it went away we wouldn't be able to to celebrate God or we wouldn't think ourselves to be blessed. And it's about grace, right? It's about receiving everything we have as a gift from God and acknowledging it as that and being humble about it and knowing that we've been given whatever it is, whether it's our children, our talents, our opportunities, these are just gifts that we are being given to steward well, um, to, to point towards those who need them well. We've been given, you've been given this little bundle to love and to care and to keep safe and to raise up into, you know, this wonderful, wholesome young person. And that is a gift and it's a gift from God that God's given you and said, whatever else has happened in your life, you know, focus on this beautiful life that looks at you every day with just absolute adoration, absolute love, and know that that's the way that God thinks of all of us. And grace, this aspect of grace, is this thing that unites us in humble service, right? When we as Christians kind of get down to the bottom of our faith, we recognize that our faith centers around this gracious gift from God, that our lives are fueled by grace, that grace isn't just a concept or a philosophical idea, but a daily reality that we are called to receive and and to take care of and to offer to others, whoever they might be. And so this morning, as we've witnessed grace in practice with this water and this wonderful little man, I invite you to think through your own life the ways that God has called you into family life, into relationships, into neighboring community life, all of these ways as opportunities to do what Jesus wanted the people who were listening to his speech on that day to do, to love God and to love their neighbors as their self. May God give us the ability and the faith to do this. Amen and amen.